0: welcome to culture at work the podcast that explores how to maintain a strong corporate culture in a rapidly changing world i'm your host tim carroll inviting you to learn from industry leaders on how to build an exciting culture to bring people back to the office and inspire them like never before on today's podcast we have jay scott christensen scott is an associate teaching professor of management at the university of missouri where his interests are focused on the impact of emerging technology on society and geopolitics. Prior to joining the college, he was an entrepreneur with decades of experience in video conferencing technology, project management, and information technology. He currently serves as the college's director of the Center for Entrepreneurship and Innovation, helping students turn their ideas into profitable products and services this is a great conversation around AI and the impacts on the workplace so let's get right to it Scott thank you so much for joining us today I'm very excited about this conversation because it's a, a topic that is very relevant today uh, everyone seems to be talking about about this about this from chat GPT to everything else that's that's out there but I just want to let's first just start with if you could give us just a little overview of kind of what you do relative to AI and AI research and 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 you know, what, what that looks like for you.
1: Yeah, sure. So I'm a teaching professor at the University of Missouri, and I also run our Center for Entrepreneurship and Innovation. I'm a little bit of a non-traditional faculty member. I'm not a research faculty member. Uh, I ran my own business for many years and had a lot of interest in emerging technologies. And obviously, when you're running an IT business, you got to kind of keep up with things. Things change very rapidly. So I tried to bring that into the classroom as well. And um, I've actually been talking about AI and machine learning in my classes for quite a number of years before things kind of blew up with generative AI, but you know, AI of all sorts has been seeping and creeping into our lives. So for example, about three years ago, I started getting these notifications from Microsoft at uh, the, I forget what their AI was called at the time but it basically was reading my emails and saying, Hey, you sent an email to Tim three days ago about getting together to lunch. You wanted me to put that on your calendar. Uh, and I started realizing this thing is uh, reading all my emails to my students. And uh, I was uh, upset about this because I could turn off the notifications, but I couldn't turn off the AI, right? And so it's creeping into our lives in lots of different ways. I'm frankly, a little bit worried that uh, we've all got distracted. We've gotten distracted by this, uh, you know, kind of magical uh, uh, force that is generative AI that seems very magical to us right now. And it's pretty fantastic to try things on it. But I'm a little bit worried that uh, there's this whole other form of AI and machine learning that's starting to decide who gets into college, it's starting to decide who gets to go to graduate school, it's starting to decide whose papers get accepted, uh, starting to decide um, who gets to live where. Um, so uh, it's a it's a wild west right now.
0: So, yeah, I mean, look, what you say is is true about the email thing, because I, I had that same thing happen to me. I wasn't even thinking it was AI. So you said you've been dealing with this or teaching about this for years. How many years have you been talking about it? Because it seems like to, you know, Joe Schmoe, like myself, that this just out of nowhere came out like a rocket. But it sounds like this has been a slow burn that we just didn't even notice.
1: It's been a slow burn for quite a while, but large language models have definitely made a breakthrough in the past couple of years. Um, My uh, students have one student that was in actually Romance languages, and he's been using OpenAI's GPT model since it was version two. And uh, we were able to get a research access to that. And it was pretty interesting. Then he would feed in, um, he was studying a type of uh, Latin American uh, literature so uh, uh fantastic i think it's called fantastical fiction but it basically is a magical fiction sorry uh so uh magical fiction so imagine harry potter but with a little bit less of a wizarding world but uh those uh things happening in our own world and uh this is a a genre that's especially prominent in in certain uh areas of latin american literature and uh, he would feed it in to this uh, model and actually get text out that would like, write another short uh, story as if it was from this long dead author. And so uh, it's been around for a while, but um, I think even OpenAI was not prepared for the response that uh, GPT-3 got when it was released.
0: I mean, I, I read something about it for the first time, maybe a year ago. Yeah. And I felt like in, in my circle, I was one of the first to even know what this chat GPT thing was. And a week later, it felt like everybody in the country knew what it was. It was, uh, it was, it was pretty crazy. So you deal with, so you teach, uh, an innovation at the Innovation Center, I'm assuming entrepreneurs and and um, people like that that want to go and build businesses. So let's go into the workplace a little bit with this conversation and start with the question I ask everybody to start with, which is how do you, and I'm taking this somewhere, I promise, but how do you define culture?
1: Uh, well, I think culture is a set of norms of behavior, and they're also usually articulated or in different cultural artifacts we might say that we have around the workplace. Um, It's very interesting to me at the university, and I don't want to diss on my university too much here, but uh, let's just say that this is a common thing in higher education, that you sometimes see a espousal of a certain culture that we want to have we want we're about student engagement and things such as that but then you have the actual artifacts you know the actual what you do uh that maybe don't indicate that maybe we are more about uh well uh you know being important looking (laughs) or uh sounding important or you know, something like that. So it's very interesting to me, coming from a small business perspective, to see a, a culture here, uh, what its uh, behaviors are, what it rewards, okay? So um, higher education doesn't reward risk that much, right? So if you tried a research experiment and you're like, ah, it didn't work, I didn't get any publications out of it, they're not gonna be saying like, okay, Tim, that's great, here's tenure so right so, so um you know it's a very interesting culture to me coming from the outside uh, and not to you know like i said this on it um it's it's done a lot for our society but um uh, that's the way i kind of define culture so i'm not a, a ethnic uh, haven't really studied this to a great degree but
0: yeah well i mean it's it's interesting because i mean it is workplace culture it's universities can have a culture uh even within its student population and um and and we we talk about it a lot, but you know it's typically an agreed upon set of behaviors created by and maintained by the employees or the students or the faculty or the you know whomever it it may be um and the espousal from the higher power doesn't necessarily reflect what it truly is because they're not the ones dictating it They're They may try to define it. They may try to help it, but it's not them. That's, that's doing it. It's the, the employees or the students or the, or the faculty. Right. Yeah.
1: And, uh, you know, faculty are very odd because this comes out of the medieval guild system. So they supposedly have self-governance of the faculty system. So um, they don't tend to like it when you tell them what to do. Uh, And coming from a business standpoint, um, uh, the ability to just fire somebody for bad behavior, um, you know, is not there. So you can't just go to somebody and say, hey, this is not a good culture fit. You know, uh, let's work to get you a job someplace else where you can find happiness and reward. But it's not going to work out here. The way I would when I was running my business. Yeah. So it's very interesting to see how the self-governing um, organization tries to uh, get along and manage culture. So.
0: Well, that that alone seems like we could unpack that for an hour, and uh, I think that's a pretty interesting conversation. Maybe you can have you and I can have that. Offline but i uh, so the the idea of culture and AI those two things coming together, how do you feel AI is changing the way we work, thus changing maybe the culture within the the workplace so it's very interesting. there's been about I would say four
1: good studies that I've read that have looked at what happens when you incentivize a certain uh, percentage of your workers to use generative AI or to use these AI tools. And what we're generally finding is if you think of a bell curve of productivity for your workers, and you have poor workers at one end, at the low end, you have, uh, um, I mean, let's say writers, okay, poor writers at one end, you have good writers at the other end, and the average writer's in between, and that's the majority of folks. What you're finding is generative AI will move that bell curve up, and it will significantly narrow by moving the poor writers up significantly. And so the good writers get a little bit of a boost. The average writers get a significant boost, but the poor writers get a lot of boosts. Okay, So that's kind of what we're seeing as far as productivity output. And I think when people are looking at this, they think, well, this is going to be a great tool that I can help level up the skills within my workforce. So I think that's what we're seeing. However, these studies were under somewhat controlled environment, which is what you want, right? So I'm going to take 500 people that are working at a large management firm. I'm going to incent them, incentivize all of them to do a certain amount of work, half of them get to use an AI and half of them don't. Okay. And then I see these results. That's a little bit different than, oh, I'm now going to turn on some AI tool for everybody in my organization, because you do have to match in with that culture, right? So there's all sorts of things about how we adopt technology and technology at least, like AI, is not a technology like fire. Fire is a wonderful technology. Think about it, Tim. You are just near a fire, you get light, you get heat, you know, it's all nice and cozy. You didn't have to do much, you just got near it, okay? That's not the case with these tools, okay? Um, and I think that a lot, there's going to be a lot of hesitancy to use some of these tools. There was another case. Uh, that looked at some radiologists and uh, I'll provide you with these links so you can put them in your show notes as well to these sure. studies. Thank you. And uh, they took an AI that was better than two thirds of radiologists. So it was a well-trained, not generative AI, but a machine learning algorithm that would identify from x-rays um, a certain disease. Very good, better than you know, 70 some percent of radiologists at doing this. They then gave this tool to 200 radiologists. They found that the radiologists actually had poor results when they used the tool. Why? Because they didn't believe it. They didn't know how this worked. The authors call it algorithmic neglect, where they discount the opinions of the algorithm. That's essentially like a black box. So I'm like, I don't know how this thing got this idea. It's probably wrong. I'm smarter, I'm going to have this other idea. And the conclusion of the paper was, you should either give the diagnosing job to the AI or to the radiologist, but for God's sakes, don't give it to a radiologist using an AI. Now that's pretty disturbing because we've been hearing in uh, artificial intelligence for years about how teams that are playing chess that are centaurs, They are actually combinations of a team of individuals and an AI are actually the best at playing chess. They will beat just machines alone and they will beat just humans alone. So these centaurs, as they're called, are the best of both worlds. You have human judgment and you have the analytical pattern recognition capabilities of a computer. Um, so we were kind of biased in thinking like, oh, these centaurs, that's the way things are going to work. And now it's like, okay, wait a second. Um, you know, maybe, especially in some workplaces, there may be a culture that's going to be difficult to deploy these tools in. I'm not saying that's true for all um, workplaces, but um, certainly the medical profession has a certain culture as well, Right.
0: Absolutely, and Centaur sounds like science fiction. Centaur sounds like something from Star Wars or Star Trek that just a made up thing, but it is it's real, huh that's interesting yeah. so would that be forgive my ignorance here, but um would that be confirmation bias that the that the radiologists have? they think they're right, and if this machine is doing something uh counter to that. They're not going to listen to it because they believe they they believe they're what they believe.
1: There was uh, the authors also go into the fact that uh, the radiologists, since they didn't really understand how these algorithms work, were assuming that the the algorithm was using um, different data points than they were. Okay, but actually they were very much in alignment. Um, and so, yeah, it's just it's just kind of a discounting. It's kind of like what we see with political beliefs, right? So if I happen to be on the far left and uh, let's say uh, Trump says something that's really good, um, I'm going to discount that, right? And the same way if I'm on the far right and Biden says something that's really good, I'm going to discount it, okay? So it's kind of interesting. There's an information bias. So you would think that, oh, all I have to do to convince Tim he's wrong about subject A is to give him more information. It turns out that the more information you give Tim about how he's wrong, he's going to discount that and he's going to overweight counter arguments, okay? So it's very hard, it's actually fairly easy to convince some people of something that's false, but it's very, very hard once that belief is established and this goes across the political spectrum. Okay, It's not, you know, like, sure. again, on one side or the other. It's very, very hard to convince somebody that their beliefs are wrong.
0: There's certain ways you can do that, but it's very difficult. Yeah, there's a great New York Times op-ed recently that, that speaks specifically to that very topic of um, Trump and uh, political parties and the message versus the messenger and all of that, uh, which is, was very uh, interesting. So as it relates to work, so we talked about AI and healthcare, which is a whole topic in itself, but in the workplace and in education, we're all hearing these things about what's happening with AI writing um, uh, papers and everything for, for students. And, and professors trying to catch that. In the workplace, look, I, I've, I have said for many years, there's a deficiency in the ability to write proper and good quality emails. And yeah. it feels like it's getting worse. Um, and I, as, as someone who, who prides themselves on on uh, structure and, and quality of, of emails, um, it's disturbing to me. It feels like AI could help with that. Um, but take that topic versus what's happening in education as it relates to the writing and, and AI. Um, yeah, I think it can help
1: a lot of poor writers become better writers. Grammarly, I recommend all my students get the pro version of Grammarly. I've been using it for years. I run my emails through it. Um, And I have gotten better at writing uh, because I will sometimes not include my antecedent. You know, this is not what we want. This what? You know, you mentioned five things above.
0: (laughs) It's a real-time teacher, right? (laughs) Yeah. So now when
1: I'm writing, I'm actually like, oh, this is going to get caught. I better put you know, whatever it is. So I think you can learn from these things. Uh, For non-native English speakers, um, it's a really good uh, way for them to help learn, help increase the creativity they're writing. Um, I'm sure if you've ever tried to write something in a foreign language, you're probably like me and it's all like, you know, boy run there, you know, girl run there, you know, it's very, I just
0: don't do that at all. I don't even try it. (laughs)
1: Fifth grade grade level, you know, Scott want pizza type thing. And, uh, um, so for our non-native English speakers, it can be a great help and it can teach them more about how, um, to describe things better, to tell their stories better. Um, so I think, um, as far as in the workplace, I think one of the main concerns that I'm seeing right now is where is this data going? That's one of the big things. So, OK, Tim, you're writing an email to Scott to acquire his company um, and you're negotiating terms. Um, now you just upload this in chat GPT. OK, does that now mean that you have trained that AI to now? Um, if I was to inquire and say, I want to. Uh, um, write a contract similar to those that were done by Tim. Um, Is that going to now spit out to one of my competitors? You know, where's that data going? Who owns that data? Has has Tim just, you know, disclosed something that's proprietary or private? So that's one big issue. The other thing is that uh, over 15% of the top 1000 websites have actually blocked ChatGPT, Claude, Bard from crawling their websites. Okay. For several reasons. One, if uh, I, I want, That's to control, what crawling websites mean? Basically, sucking in your website into their database. Okay, so now when Google crawls your website, so Working Spaces, um, what happens when somebody searches for terms that you might rank high on? Well, it shows your website, and what happens is you click on it, and you come to Working Spaces, right? And you control that interaction. You have a pop-up there. You want a newsletter. You want to listen to that fantastic podcast that Prof. C was on. All that kind of good stuff. What happens if just the information that's on your website gets incorporated into ChatGPT? It doesn't bring you to your website. It doesn't drive traffic to you. That doesn't help you in any way. And in fact, it might hurt you. It might represent your brand in a way that you don't want be represented okay so some people are estimating that those top 1000 websites most of them are publishers or people that are selling something or companies that are selling something that probably 85 percent of them will block that okay so we're gonna start to see um a limited more limited data set coming into these systems
0: so are they blocking it so it and and we've talked Briefly about this um, before, but um, is that because we, if we give up our information as an organization, a company that sells things like working spaces, could, our competitors could go and figure out how do we sell against them? What do we do that they don't? What are what high, highlights? How do we highlight what we do versus what they do? And that just gives them. Kind of a playbook, right? Yeah, and you could do that, right? You could, as an analyst,
1: sit down and and you know make a matrix and try and figure all that out, and and that's you know what competitors do. But the ability to do that in fifteen seconds is right. a kind of a whole different deal. Uh, I you might also have things about how you work internally that I could divine from combing through your website, some proprietary or uh, tr- uh, what we might call a trade secret about how you do business. Um, now maybe a great analyst could do that, but it would take them a long time. But I certainly don't want one of these large ma- language models to um, let me in on some secret about how you're doing business. Um, so I think there's multiple reasons why companies are going to say this really doesn't have any advantage for me. I'm not getting anything out
0: of this. Um, I'm going to just block it. So do you think that? <laughs> I mean, this is a trite question, but I think some people do believe this. Do you think that AI is eventually going to take over um, the workplace and start to have, you know, this machine learning just ultimately? Sure, it's already taken over some jobs, but just kind of take over the, the the workplace. There's fear that, you know, the machines will rise up. Um. No, I don't think so.
1: But I think if I had certain functions that were very formulaic, um, if that was my job, if I, my job was to write Instagram posts for a company, I would probably be a little worried because I could feed all the previous Instagram posts for this company that were effective into these LLMs. So I use this as an example. Now write 100 posts about these topics. And I'm going to upload a spreadsheet for you. Um, and you could get all that work done in an hour or two um or maybe a minute or two and um so there's certain jobs that are certainly going to be affected but i would say that um i think it's going to change the nature of work you know one of the a good book that i'd recommend that's on the subject of medicine that she talked about earlier is called deep a medicine by eric topol and in that he thinks that the jobs of radiologists you know the the practical work of reading a Uh, an MRI or x-ray is going to go away, but he thinks that what is going to have to happen is it's going to free up time to have more of that emotional work. And so that might be some ways that we might view both the workplace and education. I'm, I'm, I'm frankly hopeful that this will be a huge disruption to education and the kind of factory way that we do education, at least at the higher education level. And I would like it to uh, be a useful tool, a useful for just-in-time tutor for when students need it. I think the ability to allow students to engage at their level that they're at will be tremendous. And I want to work one-on-one with students to work on various projects. So I think we need a shift to project-based learning. I think we've needed that. We've known about that for uh, many, many years. There's a there's a very famous paper called the um, Two Sigma Problem. Um, and that was by Benjamin Bloom. And uh, he basically showed that, you know, remember that kind of uh, distribution uh, as I was describing for workplace uh, right. productivity, the same sort of thing as in the classroom. It's the same sort of, you know, here's the bell curve for your students? Well, what we know is if you do very intensive tutoring for students that is by a good tutor, a tutor that knows how to tutor somebody, so I'm not going to tell you, Tim, no, you did it wrong. Here's the right answer. I'm going to say, oh, boy! it looks like Tim doesn't quite get this concept. Let's back up a little bit and do some exercises until he gets comfortable with that and then move forward. Right. the kind of a good tutor. Yeah. We know that that bell-shaped curve can narrow significantly and once again move up. So we can take below average students and turn them into above average students. We can take average students and turn them into high-performing students. We've known that for decades. Okay. But we have not been willing to spend the money and the time to do that. Okay. Um, that's my, (laughs) I'm not, you know, I'm speaking on my own soapbox here, but, uh, you know, that's the way I see it. And we, we know what we need to do for education. Education is not about information transfer. It is a social, it is a social process. Okay. If it was just about information transfer, Tim, we would both be billionaires and have six pack abs because the information's out
0: there. Very true. We're gonna break away for just a quick message and we'll be right back after this. At Working Spaces, we do much more than just sell furniture. We immerse ourselves in the culture of each and every client and then create spaces that inspire. Inspire creativity, inspire productivity and inspire connectivity. So if you're looking to create an office space that inspires your employees to want to come back to the office, collaborate face-to-face, and do their best work every day, contact Working Spaces. Working Spaces, the innovative leader in office furniture and design since 1999, now in six markets nationwide. Welcome back to Culture at Work. So this is not new. This concept of technology replacing workers, it's not a new thing. People sometimes get seduced into thinking that, you know, this is a different time than it's ever been. Sure, the technology is more advanced, but the idea of replacing workers with some form of technology is is not new, right?
1: Oh, yeah. This goes back, um, you know centuries, if not millennia, right? Uh, I think that you look back to the Industrial Revolution and the steam engine, um, there were many places in Europe that did not want to industrialize because the kings and ruling class did not want to see workers displaced. Uh, the only place that really worked well was in Great Britain, where the um, elite had kind of captured the um, political power in the country and were able to put down the workers in a lot of ways. So troops were called out to put down workers that were protesting or smashing looms or doing things like that. But if you actually look at the the you know, how that technology was distributed, um, it was not equal across Europe. They did not just industrialize uh, or adopt the loom or steam power all at the same time. And I think we're going to see something similar. I think in the US, there are some wage pressures in certain areas. So I think you will see uh, adoption of AI. I think um, if you were to take automation technology into some uh, countries where they're experiencing a 50% uh, unemployment rate, um, you would probably have uh, your little robot destroyed in a few seconds. <laughs> so. Just like the weaving looms,
0: right? Yeah. And and again, heard you say before, you know, would have hated to be the guy, you know, who used to uh, light the the lamps uh, around town before the light bulb. bulb,
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So the whole thing is as a society,
1: light has moved us forward. We could say that was a job creating technology, but it did suck to be the lamplighter. Right, so that's what we're kind of grappling with. Yeah, the AI may, you know, move humanity forward. Disease, you know, prevention and cures may be an amazing technology, and humans may be so much better off 60 years from now. <laughs> but what's it going to be like in the next five years, right? And so um, that's what we're kind of struggling with: is how can we kind of do this a little bit better than we've seen in times in the past?
0: how do you feel AI can help or hurt culture, employee engagement, things of, of, of that nature? How do you feel this can, this technology can help or hinder that, that process? Cause everybody's looking for culture these days. Everybody you ask, I, you ask anybody who's looking for jobs or whatever there's like, I want to be with a place that has a good work culture, um, organizational culture. And so, How is AI going to help that? Or do you feel it's going to eventually get in the way?
1: Well, um, I don't know that I have clear insight onto that. I think what a lot of people have thought and proposed that this may lead to us working less or having to work less. There's actually um, one of the big companies that was started here in my town called Carfax, which probably most people have heard of. Um, employees, I think about 250, 300 folks here in Columbia, Missouri, and uh, they're going to a four-day work week. Now that's not because of AI. They just ran an experiment this summer and they told everybody, Hey, you know, if we can try and get our work done, cut out any unnecessary meetings, and let's see if we can do it in four days. And then you can just have Fridays off this summer. They found no decrease in productivity. And so um, they've decided that they're just going to do that, and that's without. Uh, now they use machine learning in many different ways internally, but not ChatGPT and all these other things. So.
0: They did the same thing in in uh, England. There was, I think, 70 companies as a as a country. They ran a test uh, to see, and and I, I believe that ultimately it came back with similar uh, findings that uh, that. Do you, this is just a side note has nothing to do with AI, but do you feel like that is yet again, a, an opportunity where, Hey, those employees knew that this was a trial and by gosh, they're going to get after it for four days because they would love to have a four day work week. And once they get it, they may kind of ease up a little bit. And then I don't
1: know. I don't think they, I think that you probably, i worked once where I worked um, Monday, Tuesday, I worked 10 hours a day, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday. It was great i was i could i could engage for 20 hours you know on those two days back to back no problem but then i had a nice break right i had a mental break from that and so i think i was more productive actually and so i think um i I think it has enormous potential you know along those same lines uh japan has been struggling with the population decline uh one city i i read about recently they actually said okay we're not we're going to enforce it that you can't work more than 40 hours a week okay? because japanese culture we're a big work culture they're a huge work right. culture right? right well it turns out that the birth weight rate went up when people were not working 80 hours a week it's a miracle
0: had some free time <laughs> on their hands
1: <laughs> and some free time they felt relaxed they weren't stressed sure. out you know so um there may be all sorts of good benefits for society um, if we uh, work a little bit less
0: and maybe a little bit smarter, it's interesting. And and you know, I think some of this um, hybrid workplace is doing the same thing, don't you think?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think it's uh, lending more flexibility. You know, that is a big thing with uh, hybrid workplace is how you maintain or build culture, especially with a new employees that you're onboarding. Um, I think that's um, you know where a lot of people have some uh, concerns. I know that several of my students have gone to work for uh, places that will require them to be in the office for two years, but then they say you can go hybrid. So they basically have decided that um,
0: very interesting. Uh,
1: they're going to uh, assimilate them into their culture or, or uh, you know at least uh, make sure that they are a good uh, fit and understand what the culture is. Uh, And as you know, it sounds like you talk about it a lot that, um, you know, maintaining culture in a company is very, very difficult. Um, And uh, I think uh, that's probably the biggest issue with remote work.
0: Yeah, I many, many years ago did my master's thesis on building and maintaining culture in a virtual world. And uh, it is very difficult for many reasons that you've just mentioned. I mean how do you onboard people? How do you mentor people? How do you um, really maintain and there's ways you can, and there's places where it does work, but, but it's very, very difficult, if not impossible um, to, to do it. But I think this hybrid um, idea and model, if done in the right way is very interesting, right? The office matters, the building Culture is going to happen face-to-face. I truly do believe that. But getting some work done uh, and, and giving a break, we do, uh, at Working Spaces, we do um, work from home Wednesdays. And it's in the middle of the week for the same reason you were talking about Monday, Tuesday, off Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. It's a break in the middle of the day, right? You don't have to commute. You get to, to uh, put, get some heads down work and not get the interruptions. Uh, it, it, it works for us. But I, you know, in the same way that I think maybe this four day work week is working for uh, some people, it it mentally gives you a break from the office. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I think, um, you know, it is interesting about remote work. I thinking when you mentioned that, I was thinking about when we went to uh, online teaching for COVID and that was not really online teaching. It was just a hail Mary to complete, you know, our courses. In a lot of ways, it wasn't like we designed these courses to be on Zoom. Um, But one of the things uh, as we did start to uh, get into subsequent semesters, it caused a lot of us to talk about, well, what do we really need to teach? Have we just filled up, you know, too much of our classes with busy work? And I think that's um, something we never kind of groom, right? So that was a good reason for us to groom things. Okay, here's the eight things I need these students to know when they leave my project management class, okay? Rather than I'm gonna teach them 48 different processes and all this other stuff, uh, because that was in the textbook. So really starting to prune. And I think that's one of the problems that I see with culture and I see with, Things here at the universities from time to time is that there's no pruning, right? So um, it, you need to be uh, able to say, you know, this is not working. How do we improve this process? Um, why, you know, we're stuck doing it a certain way. So you need to have those trigger points to actually do those types of evaluations because, in general, they will not happen on their own, um, and I think business does do that a little bit better because it affects their bottom line. But um, you know, once you get beyond a certain uh, certain size, I think we all be, get bureaucratic. Uh, there's another very good book that I would recommend. The the gentleman has passed away now, but it's called "Bullshit Jobs." <laughs> Sorry, hopefully that's okay to say no, here. Absolutely okay. <laughs> uh, um, and it's very sounds like in- an interesting book. It's a very interesting book, and he talks, uh, um, uh, he's a sociologist, um, and I think, uh, uh, or maybe an anthropologist, but um, I think you would find it very interesting. Um, I think your listeners would find it interesting. But one of the things he talks about is um, what are the things that are bullshit jobs? And one of them is duct taping. So uh, you basically, and this is, I do a lot of this because I am duct taping different information systems on the university campus that do not talk to each other. And there's no incentivization, there's no incentivization structure to make them talk to each other because we'll just have faculty do it. So for example, when I'm teaching a large lecture class, I have a website I log into and I get all the people that have disability accommodations, they get a little extra time on their quizzes, stuff like that. Great. Fantastic. I can't export that because they want they want to cover that up for FERPA reasons. Okay. I would like to then somehow get that into my learning management system. Well, learning management system won't let you paste in a name. <laughs> okay. You see where I'm going here? Sure. So every time I do a quiz, this is basically an extra 20 minutes of duct taping these two information systems together. Um, for other reasons, I can't do a Python script because there's no API in one of the information systems. It's a home rolled system. So, um, you know, I'm sitting there going, uh, why? <laughs> and why am I doing this? Well, it's because um, nobody else is in charge of these information systems gets a benefit from making my life easier in this bureaucracy. So um, I, um, unfortunately that book has made me recognize (laughs) the bullshit aspects of this job sometimes a little bit more and probably I feel a little more resentful now.
0: (laughs) Well, and you know, hey, to tie that back to AI, there is, uh, because I've been doing some research on this recently just for our own internal systems, uh, something called robotic process automation, which you are very familiar with. And, you know, that can be that bridge between two systems to, and it's not cheap, but it is, uh, it's interesting that AI is being used to even do stuff like that, to, you know, bridge those two systems.
1: Yeah. And, you know, that's the other thing that I was talking with a student today, they were asking me, well, when do you think Apple's going to get into this? You know, don't you think Apple's going to come into this in a big way? And I said, you know, I'm a Mac user and I recognize a lot of times that my computer should just be saying, hey, Scott, I notice you're looking at the names that are on this website and you're typing them into dialog boxes over here and hitting search and then saying, give an extra 10 minutes. Do you want me to just do that for you? Yeah. yeah. And so I'm kind of amazed that, you know, I was thinking of the day I had my first Apple 2e and probably... 1983 or something. And I'm like all these years later, why is my computer so stupid? I mean, why can't it recognize that I'm doing this and just take over?
0: I I feel as if it will come. I think they're slowly integrating this so we can, they're, they're boiling the frog just a little (laughs) bit at a time. Right. I think that's what they're doing to us. Well, Hey, last question for you. Um, kind of what is your crystal ball look like for the future, um, short-term and long-term of AI in the workplace?
1: Well, I hope that we see something a little bit more like a Star Trek level AI. This assistant that's actually a valuable assistant for doing calculations, for doing synthesizing of data, for comparing and going through large data sets, for being able to do all sorts of work um, and changing our work toward more of the one-on-one relationships that we have with people in our workplace. Because one of the things about those studies I mentioned at the very beginning of our conversation here is that when they looked at writing, they found that the creativity of how things were described did increase, but there was no increase in no new ideas. So the novelty, which is different than creativity, but the novelty, something new, that is not enhanced yet by AI without at least there being some human in the middle of that. Okay, Maybe a human can say, hey, um, I want to know how polka dancing relates to KPMG's latest uh, audit report of... Um, you know Shell Oil, okay? So maybe some human could come up with a new way to predict, uh, you know, Shell Oil's earnings based on the current polka trends or something. But uh, you know, so it would be, take a human to think about those new and weird ideas. And so um, I think that's one of the things that's interesting is that a lot of these studies are showing that um, it's uh, it needs to be a human involved if you're going to get something novel out of an AI. They can't produce a lot of novel things on their own
0: well scott thank you so much this is just such a fascinating topic it's something that's affecting us a great deal now whether we're willing to admit it or not it's gonna affect us even more in the future and the workplace i think is already forever changed will continue to be forever changed all because of this topic so thank you so much we really really appreciate you joining us today thanks for having me